Hi everyone, this is Morgan Phelps with Acuity Brands. Welcome back to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. We have created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans, Lindsay Baker and Kiara Gold. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us, joining us again this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. This is Lindsay. And Kira. And uh, yeah, we're back for another exciting week um, to talk to badass women. And I'm once again so thankful that we have this. I've just been reflecting on that for the past few days. Like, what a blessing it is that we get to do this every week. It is. It's, it's um, you know, it's not always like all positive emotions of course but um, <laughs> it's uh still it's um as someone I think said at one point you like the you know this conversation about hope versus courage like it's it's that hope is is sort of an emotion that um implies a certain naivete and courage is probably the thing that we all need right now and <laughs> courage <laughs> is the thing that is you know i feel like i get out of out of the podcast um which, absolutely you know what i mean yeah so what have you been up to how are you i'm good i'm coming to terms with there seems to be something different about time now in this yeah phase. Yeah. i can't quite put my finger on it but i feel like i have to be more deliberate about expectations for what i can get done in a day <laughs> yeah <laughs> interesting i'm not really sure why that is but it's definitely things seem it's one of the weird things that has shifted um and of course i've continued to you know i'm still reading a lot about just the whole shift and i think what's really exciting now is all this talk about how we don't have to go back to normal normal yeah because there were so many problems with normal you know yeah Yeah. (laughs) um so that's kind of an interesting thing yeah i've been thinking a lot about that this past week it, it is it's sort of that we got past a point where um everyone thought this was just a brief interlude and that we mm-hmm. that, that you know um because you know then by definition you can kind of pick up where you left off and I, I mean i think everyone knew even during those times that it wouldn't be exactly the same but now it's starting to be these bigger realizations of how much time this is really going to be and mm-hmm. and just how different uh things could be right you know, if 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 we seize that opportunity, of course, but I think, yeah, I've been really, I mean, we were talking last week a little bit about the uh, protests and things, um, mm-hmm. and I'm still sort of fixated on some of these questions of, of sort of, um, yeah, citizenship and social activism and these kinds of things, and yeah, it's it's been, oh, I don't know, it's, it's hard to say it's like optimistic or encouraging, but it's certainly capturing a lot of my mental energy. Did you read? For sure. Yeah. Well, um, actually, you know, it's interesting. I'm not, uh, Brene Brown, um, there was a quote circulating that she had put out there about this topic and it sort of captivated me a little bit. Um, It's a little long, but let me, let me blow through it. We will not go back to normal. Normal never was. Our pre-corona existence was not normal other than we normalize greed, inequity, exhaustion, depletion, extraction, disconnection, confusion, rage, hoarding, hate, and lack. We should not return, my friends. We are being given the opportunity to stitch a new garment, one that fits all of humanity and nature. I kind of loved that. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. 
Yeah, that does really capture it in in many ways. Yeah, yeah, I I um I love that. I I wish I had something kind of similar to share. I feel like the stuff I've been thinking about is more. It's honestly more immediately. I I, I have been very um, encouraged to start to get involved in this organization called the East Oakland Collective, which is here in Oakland where where I live. Mm-hmm. It's working to on many things, um, but in particular, helping the the new project is helping to house people who are unhoused during coronavirus mm-hmm. and times. And uh, and just watching the process of them going through that has been really inspiring and also sort of it's just so hard to watch um, the vast inequities of this whole thing there there was a great piece that i read in the new republic about uh let's see it's it's a woman named sarah probably jaffe i think is how you would pronounce her last name Mm -hmm. it's called the post-pandemic future of work and and she just really cuts to the like to the heart of some of these issues in particular one thing that she said that i that just kind of hit me and i'm still sort of working through it is this idea that the essential when we say essential worker oftentimes what we mean is uh you aren't allowed to stop right and and that and that that is in of itself a form of of inequity um that i mean it's not it's not that that idea of inequity was new to me but the way that they put it in the article Mm -hmm. was just like so heartbreaking i mean even i don't know if we talked about this but there was a piece in the news a few weeks ago about an emt worker sorry uh yeah an EMT worker in New York who doesn't have mm-hmm. health insurance and he's like what's oh. going on from and he doesn't have any works in healthcare. Right. That was just anyway. I'm sure he's not the only one. Yeah. No, of course not. And right. you can hear like just even the guy, the reporter talking to him being like, Wait, I'm sorry, what? You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's a really difficult yeah. um moment. So yeah. Well, and so many of those essential workers are doing things that we are deemed essential, but they're really for the convenience and comfort of yeah. many of us, myself included. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah exactly. I'm getting lots of takeout. There's yeah. <laughs> all those things. Um, and I'm happy, you know, I think that it's good to keep these businesses going, but I also worry about all those folks. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think it's, um, I don't know. I mean, the whole thing, it's just, we're just, we're grappling. We're dealing with new, new challenges, new contexts all the time. So yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's hard. But I'm glad that we're in it and we're, you know, facing it and not looking to go back to some some normal that somehow we any of us like that much. Uh, well, I yeah. don't really like the term silver lining, but it is. <laughs> I, I really, it's not. I'm not a fan of it. But it, there is. I mean, the inequity situation has been you know even even though there has been growing awareness about it it still is so has been so hidden and so undiscussed in our culture that having that revealed and addressed and go to a place where we can never go back to unknowing it in the way that we were before that to me i mean i don't again not a silver lining per se but i think that is it represents a kind of progress for us yeah 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 i hope so i think so I, I agree. Um, and it is therefore very timely that we introduce our guest for today, um, Liz Obu, which I, I have to say, I actually listened to Liz on a, um, on a webinar last week that um, organization I'm involved with, Spur, uh, did on, um, you know, sort of post-pandemic and cities and things. So 
I know that Liz is going to um, have a lot of additional thoughts along these lines for us today, which is exciting. Liz is the founder and principal of Studio O. And Kira, you want to maybe, well, actually, let's just say hi to Liz. Hi, Liz. Hi, Lindsay. How, hi, Kira. How are you guys? <laughs> Welcome. Great. Thanks for joining us, Liz. Yeah. yeah. I'm really excited you could join us. Um, so let me just give a little bit more background. Liz is an architect, an urbanist, and a social innovation strategist. Um, and you mentioned Studio O, her, uh, which is a multidisciplinary design and innovation consultancy, and she collaborates uh, with communities in, um, in need to leverage the power of design to catalyze sustained social impact. Um, you might have heard Liz, she's been a TED speaker. Um, she is one of public interest design's top 100 and a former Aspen Ideas scholar, among other things. Just a little extra background there. Yeah. So cool, um, and we're so fortunate to have you. So thanks for taking the time, Liz. Um, so we wanted to first just see if you could tell us a little bit about how and why you got involved in architecture as as a as a career path, and how you came to find yourself in in the particular position that you're in, which is really unique in many ways, and I think inspires lots of people. Sure. Um, sort of as I uh, when I gave the TED talk a couple of years ago, one of the things that I said uh, at the beginning of it was that I was the weird child in my family who drew. Uh, so I grew up in a family of social scientists. My father was an anthropologist and my mom a public health expert, um, which has been pretty interesting in these COVID it's times. Um, <laughs> she's got a lot to say. Um, but, you know, I, I, I drew, like I just, I made things. I drew all the time. And it was interesting trying to figure out what kind of career I was going to do with that. I think as I was a kid, I just thought of like, oh, I just like making things. But I was also at the same time deeply influenced by what my parents did and the conversations that that often led to at the dinner table um, and beyond. And so we were always talking about people, how they lived, how they related to one another, what kind of challenges they faced, what could give people opportunities to not just survive, but thrive. And so, you know, I think uh, one of the things when you're an adult is you start to look back and see all the things that may have put an imprint that got you to where you are. And so for me, when I look back at those conversations, what it meant is that by the time I got to college and started looking at, well, what did I want to major in? And I was drawn to the arts. Um, I couldn't separate this act of making from the idea of who were the people who were going to be impacted by the things that I made and what could I do to be in service of those folks, um, especially those who may not have had all of the sort of privileges and, and benefits that I did. Not to say that, you know, I was at the top of that privilege ladder, but, you know, I recognize that just as there were folks up ahead of me on that ladder, there are definitely folks who were behind me as well and that I needed to look at all of that. So I was really lucky that I went to school that allowed us to basically design uh, the architecture major. So I took urban sociology and economics and, and stuff like that alongside taking art classes and design studios. And that act of being able to design my major and, and craft it and craft my definition of architecture to fit what I needed to understand the world sort of carried through. So, um, you know, I spent a year in Sub-Saharan Africa on a traveling fellowship right after college and I couldn't help but look at the spaces that were being 
created by architects, which often weren't serving the vast majority of the population and looking instead at what people were doing for themselves in the absence of any designer being there to support them. When I went to grad school at Harvard, which at the time was definitely not known for talking about people, uh, I continued to look for ways to sort of hijack my education. And that continued after I um, worked for a very traditional firm and would still find ways to explore these issues. Um, and then shortly thereafter, I went to public architecture, which was sort of one of the first um, sort of nonprofits along with Architecture for Humanity about 20 years ago that really started to to push this idea of design practices that would engage this, um, these kinds of topics of social justice and um, improving communities. And so really went from there to IDEO.org and then to my own practice, gosh, about eight years ago now, eight or nine years ago, um, looking at these issues. And I think, you know, sadly, uh, over the time that I've been in this practice, the need to do what I do um, in terms of looking at how do you apply architecture and design to try and make social change has actually only increased. Um, and so happily, there are more people who are willing to bring folks who practice design like me to the table to talk about how do we actually meaningfully improve um, the communities that, were, that um, you know, people who've been historically harmed but also like how do we create a vision for the future in which that is centered? Yeah, oh, there's so much there. I, I feel like one thing, I don't know, we're always trying to make sure that people feel like there's some relatability to their path to when we're trying to describe, you know, like how people get on our podcast. And one of the things I think is so fascinating about you is that it's, it's as if part of your upbringing and all of these other aspects of your life you kind of knew the context that you wanted to engage in and you, and then you knew that you wanted to be, you know, uh, a designer it, using tools that design could bring to the table. And I think that's actually, I, that can be pretty different for a lot of people where they sort of start more with this idea they're going to be an architect. Mm -hmm. And then one day they discover that they care about issues of inequity or sustainability or whatever it is. Um, and I, yeah, I just, I can't help. I'm, a, I'm also the daughter of a public health practitioner. Um, and I, and it's, um, I've come only to understand this as I've gotten older, that it, it influences like the way you ask questions in the world, right? In yeah. some way. Um, and, and so um, I, I just think that's really helpful for people to understand, especially, I know various people who've gone from architecture into IDEO like environments and um that's a hard thing to do it's it you have to be pretty you know it's it, it's hard in the sense that it's very prestigious and it's hard to get into that but i love the fact that it comes for you from a place of sort of a lifelong perspective on issues you were interested in solving in the world or, or engaging in anyway um so yeah. i don't know just it's really cool to hear um that yeah and, and i mean i would just build on that and sort of say i get asked all the time of like how i want to do what you do how do i get into this <laughs> and i often just say you know figure out what you're passionate about what you want your role in, to, in the world to be and then look at the skills that you have to bring to the table so in, in my case it you know there's a whole list of skills but the one that ties to architecture was like this ability to think creatively and um this passion for making and combining that with this idea of like how do I, I want to I want to deal with social 
justice issues, right? And there, there's so many paths that you can take that can support that. I could have become a doctor, I could have become a lawyer, I could have done all of these things. But where my, my talents lay is in this making, like that was something I was equally passionate about. And so the path kind of materialized and I helped support building it by looking at how do I bring those things together. Liz, you've talked about, actually, I mean, you, you reference it as social justice, but you have talked about this notion of spatial justice, which is, mm -hmm. seems to me, really the sort of translation of social justice into, into the architectural and urban design realm a little bit. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what spatial justice is, how you see that, and why it's important um, to tell this story in the industry. Sure. So spatial justice is actually a term that was coined by geographers quite some time ago, but it's kind of come back in resurgence in, in recent years. And it basically means that justice has a geography and that the equitable distribution of access, services, opportunities, and outcomes should be a basic human right. And for people who aren't familiar with, well, what does that mean out in the world? I often say if you know, the fact that we can look at countless cities across this country and look at differences in which neighborhoods got the gleaming office towers and which neighborhoods, um, you know, got empty, empty lots, uh, which neighborhoods got the really nice parks um, and which neighborhoods didn't, uh, which neighborhoods have really fancy multi-million dollar transit stations and, and which ones have insufficient bus routes. Like mm -hmm. all of those, and, and then if you were to map race and class on top of that, you also see very particular demographics associated with those neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And so the lack of having resources in certain neighborhoods is what the lack of spatial justice looks like. And so as we talk about what does it mean to achieve social justice or what does it mean to achieve racial justice, I think the thing is that as long as we continue to be physically separated by race or class or get access to different resources because of what we look like or how much money we have, then we actually can't achieve the other forms of justice because implicitly that division means that you are condemning generations upon generations to either experience more harm or disproportionately experience more benefit. And so I think for too long, architecture um, and design kind of gets relegated to a sort of fancy luxury that we don't have time to, to look at those things or we should be only focusing on minimum need, like putting a roof over someone's head. But I think unless we really examine it from this deeper understanding of justice, we can't actually fix those, those problems. And so, really embracing spatial justice as part of the imperative of how we operate, I think it's critical to creating cities that actually support everybody's ability to thrive and minimize the harm that is coming to some groups of people and that has always been coming to some groups of people for as long as we can remember. Yeah, it, um, it makes, it, uh, the whole topic is so fascinating and I and especially, I feel like because it's a daunting one, and I, I was hoping you might talk a little bit about that. It's just, even in particular, this issue of gentrification, which you talk about in your uh, most recent TED Talk, is such a difficult topic. Um, I, I find, especially in communities of white people, white architects, it, it's one of those topics that people just don't feel comfortable 
with at all. And I thought your TED talk did a really um, masterful job at starting to have the conversation in a way that might actually get people to intellectually engage in that in the subject, you know, of how, how do cities become, how do places become more inclusive? And how do you get to that? It's sort of by recognition of the past and, and or the present, really. Um, and I was just hoping you could talk a little bit more about gentrification in particular and how you think about that or work with people on it. Sure. So I, I think the thing to sort of first understand about, you know, gentrification as it is kind of defined, uh, I guess, in our, our layman's term has become synonymous with um, wealthy people um, and perhaps more white people moving into neighborhoods that were historically poorer and with populations of color. Um, and with the, that wealth or that new population comes additional resources that had previously not existed in the neighborhood. And then shortly thereafter, you see the displacement of the original inhabitants into the neighborhood. And so that, that changeover, I think, is kind of what people see whenever they hear the, hear the word gentrification. And so it, it almost becomes like this, this evil thing that nobody ever wants to talk about. Um, and nobody wants to be a part of, but we're seeing it happen in cities across the country. And in the in my TED talk, I talked about um, Majora Carter, who is this um, really amazing, innovative, um, I would say, uh, developer who deals with issues of spatial justice in New York. And uh, she once said to me, poor people don't hate gentrification, they just hate that they rarely get to stay around long enough to enjoy its benefits. And so in reality, it's not that we shouldn't be bringing resources to neighborhoods that have been historically poor or harmed in some way. It's that we should be bringing in those resources and figuring out how those who have been the recipients of the most harm can actually be the ones who are able to benefit the most. And for me, I believe that that needs to be a extremely intentional act because we see what happens when we just allow economic forces to be what they are. Um, you know, we follow the same, same pattern again and again and again. Uh, in your introduction, as you guys were talking, you discussed this idea of looking at who are some of the communities who are most impacted by COVID. And, and that should really not be a surprise to any, any of us. Um, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, I was listening to an interview she did a couple weeks ago, and she said that the virus knows no, no boundaries or borders, but it definitely knows how to flow along the systems of injustice that were already in place. Mm -hmm. And so I think that inevitability uh, is something that you see when it comes to what happens with investments in poor neighborhoods as well. And so in a lot of the projects that I take on, one of the things that we look at is how can we be intentional about understanding from the get-go who has been um, the most are, are, excuse me, who's been the most harmed and who has benefited the most um, and, and who will do that if we just do things in a sort of business as usual fashion. And then we start to ask the question of like, what would it take for us to understand what the needs and desires are of those who have been um, most shut out of benefits previously? And how do we actually fashion the project to both make sure that they start to benefit from what comes, that 
we do healing so that there is a connection that is more, because I think my, my goal is not necessarily to say, oh, we need to lift up poor people and screw, screw anyone who has means. I think it's that we have to knit a fabric of what a connected society is and one in which everybody understands their role within it and is conscious of how does the way in which they live support or harm their fellow community member. And so I think part of the role that I look at is how do I build those bonds? So it's, it's not just getting, uh, say, a poor resident of public housing a seat at the table. It's how to make sure that I'm also building relationships of trust between her, her and the person who is actually the lead decision maker or person with funds um, and resources on the project so that at the end of the day, when I leave the table, there is actually a relationship there that hopefully continues along the same lines of whatever I help to set up within a project. So one example is, um, you know, right now I'm working on projects uh, in the South Bay, in East Palo Alto, which is a, a sort of um, historically African-American, but now predominantly Latino city. And um, one of the projects we're working on is a housing project. And um, originally we were brought on by the owner to look at how do we just improve quality of life for the mostly low-income residents. And um, we did everything from actually creating listen, listening sessions to actually start to build a communication string between um, the ownership and the residents. And that has now resulted in the creation of an advisory committee. We also took the things that we were hearing from them that um, they didn't have, such as access to open space or certain resources. And we ended up building um, two pop-up parks on empty lots that the owners own had um, and uh, then partnered with the YMCA to actually provide programming there. And all of this was to sort of build a stronger community so that when things such as redevelopment do come, um, and there's a small portion of it that is now moving forward with redevelopment, that actually we have the seeds there to be able to have a really great conversation about what kind of resources could be brought as part of redevelopment that continue to benefit this community and continue to look for ways that we're actually building people's capacity to stay. And so within that, it's meaning not only looking at architecture and design as the creation of something physical, but looking at all the intangibles that might support the ability of um, a, a new unit of housing, not just to be a shelter, but actually be something that is a home and surrounded by pieces that support people's ability to thrive in place. Yeah, and I, I just want to reflect on what you're saying and the process that you're following that actually comes from your first TED Talk, um, which uh, I think is worth pointing out. You were talking about cook stoves and how the initial question that you had gotten when you went into this community was how to get people to use cook stoves more. And you realized that the question was wrong and that the real question is essentially about how people cook and that you know what to design around the ways that people cook in order to get people sort of you know better supported to cook without um, uh, wood. I think in that case it was wood fuel. Um, and and I think that what you're talking about here is so similar in the sense that um, you start with the community, you start with the issue, you start with the sort of the challenge um, or the inequity 
rather than saying I'm here with my toolbox and I'm like ready to see, you know, it's sort of like, it's this issue of like, I've got a hammer, where are the nails? That looks kind of like a nail. I'm going to nail it, you know, <laughs> and like you're totally. very, very focused on the nails. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think in that, that example that you laid out, it's also maybe speaks to what Kira was saying earlier about like, sometimes it seems like to fix these things is so big. And that part of the reason why people don't touch it is it's like, well, I can't fix hundreds of years of inequity. Um, you know, I can't go back in time and stop slavery. Like, so how can't we just start from zero right now? And, and I, you know, often say that like, you may want to start from zero, but the person who you're dealing with can't because they can't erase everything um, that put them in the place where they are. But in tackling inequity, you can look for like, what are, what are little ingredients that actually allow us to meaningfully move forward? And maybe in that first step, we're not solving everything, right. but we are making a, a march forward. So in the cook stove example, it's like, I can't, I can't solve um, hunger. I can't solve people's lack of access to decent wages. I can't um, solve the complete deforestation that was happening that was also impacting the resources. But by asking the right question to solve for, we can start to identify, well, what are little things that we might be able to do that could support somebody? So, um, you know, one of it was like understanding, well, part of the reason why people can't switch from wood to charcoal was that they actually uh, didn't have the funds. So could you start some sort of really pilot fuel subsidy program that would enable somebody to be able to um, try to be able to afford the cost of fuel that may allow them to use the cook stove technology a little more often. Or a few years ago, I had a project in Nairobi where I was working with um, Jacaranda Health, which is this amazing program that is trying to redefine maternal health care in Kenya. And uh, in, in that case, we found a whole slew of things that they needed to do to actually sort of improve the ability of women to benefit from what was happening. And one of it was just this idea of um, traffic in Nairobi was terrible and um, women got scared and ended up going to other hospitals because they were worried about what would happen to their baby if they were waiting in traffic to try and get to this clinic. And so we said, you know, you're not going to create a whole ambulance system or transport system overnight, but you might actually be able to contract with a couple taxi drivers and run a pilot program to see if this is something that would work. It builds up trust with the mothers and you, and it perhaps gives you a groundwork where you could be able to go and apply for more funding once you prove that this is something that could work. So it's really looking for what are little changes that get at both making somebody's life a little bit better in the short term and allow us to test some ideas and build up some trust that um, you know the person who is the recipient or partner in the service sees that you're actually trying to do something mm -hmm. and that you can feel I can take a risk but within a safe place and hopefully that builds the confidence to take greater risk as you move further down. I love that. There are so many things you said that I wanted to comment on but I, I particularly am struck by the notion of starting with a relationship. I mean, there's a very big problem, but being able to deal with people and building a foundation for that kind of social fabric and, you know, being able to address redevelopment issues 
based on a trust and a relationship that exists is much easier than if you're coming into those issues with all kinds of just assumptions about what the other people might think or want or, or whatever. I think that's so important. And I love your term capacity to stay. I've heard you use that phrase before, and I think it's really powerful. Um, and it implies so many things about, you know, really giving agency to people and letting them, and, and building their um, just self-determination and, and, you know, letting them um, have a say in their place and in their lives in a way that is not about, you know, as Lindsay was pointing out, coming in to fix things and bringing a solution from outside that's going to solve this problem, you know, that, that whole approach. So I really appreciate all of that. Um, Liz, I wanted to ask you um, if you see yourself and your work um, as part of a movement, and, and if so, which one? <laughs> there are so many that you fit into. Um, it could be the sustainable, sustainability movement, equity in design, public architecture. There are several sort of strains that you touch on. So I'm curious about sort of where you see yourself. Um, all of the above. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that it's sort of accidentally on purpose that there's not one particular camp that you could put me in, in part because I think that um, silos will not be how we solve this, that so much of the issues that we're tackling and probably part of the reason why they seem so so complicated is that they they cross um, over several different categories of, of stuff. And I think, you know, one of the biggest critiques I have of my, my fellow architects and, and planners is that sometimes we are so used to operating in our lane um, that it is at the detriment of our, our profession because nobody thinks to invite us to be at the table because we don't invite them to be at our table. And so if you look at, um, you know, for instance, let's just take this, this time of looking at issues around COVID-19 and everything that it is um, wreaking havoc on and laying bare, that if you, you can't just call it a public health crisis, right? Especially if we talk about what's happening to communities of color um, or um, poor communities, it's, um, you know, both of those, those groups, I think, are um, deeply impacted, not just by the public health crisis, but by a whole host of things that have to do with the social determinants of health. And if you start going into some of those determinants, such as housing, um, economic uh, mobility, all of those things touch um, things that are arguably in different sectors. And you can't actually address the public health crisis unless you address the housing crisis, unless you address mm -hmm. the economic mobility crisis, unless you address the education crisis. And so it's only by being at the table with all of those that you can actually start to move things forward. I have a couple projects that I'm tackling right now, which are um, major housing projects. And if we were to sort of, um, I, one of them is in um, Charlottesville, Virginia, and um, my client there who runs uh, the organization that owns the property, Piedmont Housing Alliance, um, the executive director, Sunshine Mahone, has said, if all we do is build better housing, then we're just figuring out a way to help the poor be poor better. And so in that project, one of the things we're starting to explore, in addition to things that we've already done around how do we build power amongst the residents um, and address things like um, early childhood education and workforce mobility, is we're starting to look at what would it 
be to create an anti-racist development? Um, and how could we create a framework that would allow every decision that we make as part of the, the development from not just what it looks like to also, you know, what is somebody's ability to achieve when they live there? And how do we put in all sorts of program supports to assist with that? Um, mm -hmm. How does that operate from an anti-racist lens? Now, if I was approaching this just as what the strict construction of architecture is, none of that should be my concern. The only thing I should be looking at is, did I build a decent and sustainable house for these people? But if, I, if my goal is really, how do I make sure that somebody who lives here has the ability to thrive mm -hmm. um, and that I heal the harm that they have experienced, then I have to tackle all these other things. And so that means that I start playing in multiple different sandboxes and bringing people from uh, who arguably also operate in different disciplines um, from their silos to come and sit at our table so that we can figure out how do we actually do this. Absolutely. Um, Liz, so to me, that is such a fascinating thing. It seems like such a richer way to to run an architecture practice, actually, um, for example. But it is, I think, to people that have operated in a more conventional way, that sounds something close to terrifying. <laughs> you know, it's 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 scary. It's a little it's a little overwhelming, and it sounds you know at minimum messy and and hard to manage, right? So I'm I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how we can make that kind of um, thinking, um, you know, that broader thinking instead of, I mean, I love that, that quote that you had from your client. Um, and that's exactly right. Why, why should we be, you know, setting them up to be poor better? <laughs> that's a terrible idea, right? So I, I'm, I re that really resonates with me, but I, I am think, wondering how we can make that broader notion more seem like it's more achievable, something that is more achievable to people that have come out of or are used to more conventional practice? Yeah, well, a, a couple things. One, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing my bit to also try to hijack design education <laughs> and figure out a way to teach things like power and privilege um, to students who are learning design so that they can actually their whole understanding of how they're developing their design language uh, is integral with those concepts. So I would say that uh, I think in general, we need to overhaul design education to support this so that somebody isn't trying to figure this out when they're a professional, um, at least you know, from, from zero. And then I think in terms of how I actually move and practice, a couple of things are that one, I accept that I don't actually know everything. Um, and, I, and I accept that I might have to cede control of figuring some things out or even just admitting that like, I don't know how to go about that. I mean, to when my client and I started talking about this idea of an anti-racist framework, we, I was very quick to say, I have no idea what it would take to do that, but I'm willing to do the exploration to figure it out. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we consider ourselves collaborators in that. And then we've, we've had conversations since of like, okay, who do we bring to the table to help us think through that? And so mm -hmm. it, it's, it's sort of seen as an actual in-progress exercise. And I do try my best to do readings with other disciplines, attend conferences, with other disciplines just to make sure that I am expanding that knowledge. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other thing is being really um, willing to kind of reconstruct what 
the process of development is. So I think that particularly within architecture, we have some very set, uh, you know, you have schematic design, concept mm -hmm. design, design development, construction documents, et cetera. And um, if you are trying to explore these issues, it doesn't always fall within that neat package. Right. And so I think being willing to talk with your client about how to sort of find flexibility within what often are very rigid targets. Um, and this often means being creative because I know that the dollars are often tied to sure. um, those things. And so what I try to, to do is to, to get my clients to understand um, what's the vision that we're working towards and bringing up the things that seem to um, counteract that vision and um, sort of saying that we can't hit this target if we're off message and off vision. Um, so I, I treat that my role in some ways is kind of almost to be the one who reminds us how to stay on point and that, um, you know, I have some power in the process. I think sometimes as designers, we believe we're in a service industry and that we just need to do what we're told. But I think we also have the ability to see things creatively and to present back to our clients um, you know, things that don't actually work and that we can mm -hmm. speak up for those kinds of things. And then the other thing I would say is like, I think of my, I, when I say clients, I often mean that there are two different types of clients. There's the people who pay and um, who we have historically given all the power to. Mm -hmm. And then there are the people who have to live with the consequences of whatever we've created, which I don't think that our system privileges very much. Mm -hmm. And so I try to hold both in my mind um, and make sure that whatever we're creating supports both. And I think at the very least, if you're a designer asking questions of whether decisions that are being made support that second client, and if they don't, then trying to understand, well, how do you begin to advocate for them? How do you create space at the table where they can also start to advocate for themselves? Yeah, that's so powerful. It's like, I mean, I, I think it also speaks to a responsibility um, that that designers take on um, in remembering that there are people that you are impacting and that you are serving that are not paying you. <laughs> right. That, yeah, no, I, I think that's um, super powerful. And it also reminds me to mentioned to listeners that if you haven't yet listened to one of our previous um, guests, Rosa Sheng, talking a little bit about her work um, with Equity by Design, that this, they're, they're, I think part of Rosa's mission and the work that they're doing is also to try to help other designers um, learn some new methods and, uh, and context and just be educated about um, these kinds of things as well. So there's some mm -hmm. other tools out there too. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd also recommend um, Creative Reaction Lab out of St. Louis. They have an equitable development toolkit that also has some really great resources and Design awesome. Impact out of Cincinnati has also been really great, particularly in um, um, more stuff has been coming down the pipe during uh, this Corona time of different resources that they've used to both support the conversations that they have with communities, but then also to look at um, how do you make more equitable decisions or keep things on track in terms of visioning. Awesome. Well, that Great. sort of um, uh, puts up our last question for you. We're running out of time and I want to make sure we give you a moment to answer, I think, what is our favorite question to end on, which is who is inspiring you or who do you look to in your work? Um, just so that we 
<laughs> that we know about all of the other people that you think we should be engaging with or hearing about and all that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would answer this in a couple different directions. I think professionally, um, those two organizations that I mentioned are great. I also think that the Center for Urban Pedagogy in New York is um, pretty amazing. They look at these issues um, and in particular look at how do they demystify public policy for people. So they're really on the tool provision side of the fence, but um, how, the tools that actually relate to how people understand and are able to advocate for themselves within um, the built environment and cities. So they're really amazing organization, both for what they create, but also for what they model in terms of how they partner with different organizations and community members. Um, and then I think that for me, a consistent group is actually the folks living in the communities that I work with, which I know can sometimes sound like a really pat answer, but particularly I think in the time of Corona, that has come all the more to the forefront. I was on a um, with friendship court, the project in Charlottesville, uh, we've set up a project advisory committee that consists of um, residents and a couple community members. And so we had our first virtual call a couple of weeks ago and, and one of the women um, works as a grocery store uh, clerk. And she was saying about how she, before she felt so invisible <laughs> and then now in this time, like as she's an essential worker and everybody who thanks her or who like just acknowledges her existence and celebrates it in a way that they didn't know her from Adam or Eve before. Yep. And so I think about as we're, you know, a lot of us are trying to figure out how do we find, how do we find ground? How do we understand how to cope with all of these different changes in some ways? there's wisdom that actually exists within those folks because you know the idea of not being able to understand where you were going to get your food from or how you were going to make ends meet or if you could keep a roof over your head you know those feelings which might be new to some of us now they've been experiencing it for a long time and figuring out a way to get by and that's not to glorify their existence in a stretch of imagination, but out of that comes wisdom that I think that we all need to look to and to allow them to actually be our teachers as to how do we plot a city that actually creates um, a spirit and a reality of inclusivity and belonging and equity. Thank you for that. It's beautiful. And, and um, yeah, it really resonates. I feel like I've been, I, you know, climate change and politics and inequalities and all of these things uh, in the past few years have, have, you know, for many of us, I think, have, have caused us to struggle emotionally a lot. And, and I have found so much wisdom in exactly the kind of people um, that you're talking about. And uh, yeah, it's just for, for in whatever way. So yeah, uh, thank you. And with that, we're going to wrap up for today. Um, thanks so much, Liz, for being here. It's just been such a a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, and with that, that's us. That's it for the week um, on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Um, thanks again to Acuity for hosting and to you all, our listeners. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters and it helps people find us. And we will talk to you next week. <laughs>